Hello, my name is Sydney. My name's Elena. And welcome to Consumption, where we talk about infectious diseases that continue to burden developing countries and how the United States' values, priorities, and influences on those countries continue to propagate the spread of disease. Welcome to the malaria episode where we will be characterizing the disease and relating this towards the threats of agriculture, money, and power in the United States. Sydney, would you like to talk about the disease profile a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So malaria is an infectious zoonotic disease that is caused by plasmodium parasites that are spread to humans through infected bites from female Anopheles mosquitoes. In order to conceptualize the symptoms and causes of malaria, it is important to note that there are a total of six different species of parasites that affect humans. There, these specific types of parasites are known as plasmodium falciparum, plasmodium vivax, plasmodium ovale, plasmodium ovale willicari, plasmodium malare, and plasmodium nolesi. Out of these different species, plasmodium falciparum and plasmodium vivax are undeniably the greatest threat to humans, although P. falciparum causes the most lethal infections. Yeah, these are very interesting points. It is very important to note that there are stark differences in the severity of these parasites. Could you explain the transmission process for us? Sure. So malaria transmission is very complex and requires its own cycle to be understood. We can we can begin this process with an, infect an uninfected mosquito, which becomes infected by feeding on an infected host. So now that that mosquito has bitten the infected host, they are now infected with the plasmodium parasite. And they can then transmit these parasites into the human body. However, it's key to note that only the female Anopheles mosquitoes are able to transmit this parasite. Once the parasite is made, has made its way into the body, they will lie dormant in the liver for lengthy periods of time. But after growing in the liver for that time period, they will enter the bloodstream and infect the host's red blood cells. Um, other uninfected mosquitoes that decide to, to bite this now infected host during this time frame will become infected with the parasite and then continue this cycle that we just talked about. Um, since the malaria parasite can be found in the red blood cells of hosts, it is also important to note that this disease can be transmitted during blood transfusions, organ transplants, and even when sharing needles. Um, from exposure to infected blood, we can also see the transmission from mothers to un their unborn children as well. It is so crucial to know that this parasite is found in the red blood cell red blood cells of hosts. Especially for doctors, you really need to keep track of surgical procedures and use proper cleaning methods to minimize these risks for further transmission. What about the symptoms of this disease? Could you go into this further? Yes, of course. So as far as the symptoms go for malaria, they do end up getting more severe as time passes. The beginning phases of symptoms will usually start as uh, fever, chills, anemia, and tiredness. And these symptoms can then manifest into kidney failure, seizures, coma, or even death if, if treatment is not used as an intervention. For the majority of, majority of individuals, they will see symptoms appear around 10 days to a year after infection. Furthermore, malaria attacks can take place, which is when a host will experience a cycle of chills, fever, sweating, and then experience a time period in which they experience no symptoms at all. By understanding the differences between uncomplicated and severe malaria, this can illustrate how these symptoms can progress over time. So you said there's two types, uncomplicated and severe malaria. Yeah. 
So that actually reminds me of our first segment, tuberculosis with active and latent TB. Would you mind diving deeper into the two types for us? Yes, for sure. That's a really great connection there. So according to Dr. Taylor Robinson, uncomplicated malaria is where the person has symptomatic infection with malaria parasites, but no signs of vital organ disturbance. Although uncomplicated malaria does not initially create drastic complications, it can develop into severe malaria depending on economic or environmental factors. On the contrary, severe malaria is more typical in patients with no prior immunity. P. falciparum is the parasitic strain most likely to cause severe malaria, and this form of malaria is very deadly if it's not treated quickly, which can result in cerebral malaria, liver failure, or pulmonary edema. Since both types of malaria are able to become lethal, it's really important to watch over the most vulnerable groups, which include children, pregnant mothers, and travelers. The damaging effects of malaria can have on our bodies if left untreated is crazy. How are individuals treated for this? If timing is so important for this disease, is there a diagnosis process individuals should be aware of? That's a great question. So the diagnosis and treatment process for malaria is crucial considering this is a curable and preventable disease if if it's treated properly. So for those who believe that they've been infected with malaria, the WHO recommends patients to go through diagnostic testing such as microscopy or rapid diagnostic tests. Malaria is diagnosed primarily through blood tests since it can tell exactly which type of malaria parasite is causing the symptoms. However, since blood tests can take several days to produce results, rapid tests are effective for those in serious medical emergencies. Moreover, For those who have traveled to areas where malaria transmission is frequent, it is in the best interest for those individuals to undergo those rapid tests for the safety of others as well. As for treatment methods for malaria, the treatment methods are typically composed of anti-malarial drugs, which include chloroquine, phosphate, and artemisinin combination treatments, or or ACTs. For diseases like malaria, drug resistance is a crucial problem. For instance, although chloroquine is a preferred treatment, parasites are resistant to this medication, labeling it ineffective. ACTs uses multiple drugs to fight against this resistance, which makes it a key player in tackling this illness. The most important step in treatment is to see a doctor immediately if you feel sick. Since prescription drugs can cure malaria, it is up to the patient to seek help at the earliest stages possible. Likewise, it is not ideal for patients to use self-treatment since immediate care is required. The prevention of malaria is most importantly based on the commitment and political will of patients and society, and without the motivation or dedication to conquer malaria, change will not progress. So from what we heard in previous episodes, I know drug resistance is still an issue. Are there other preventative measures that individuals can take aside from medication? Oh, yes, there definitely are. In fact, screening on doors and windows, insect repellent, indoor residual spraying, and effective air conditioning are all other means of prevention that people can use. Together, vector control and anti-malarial drugs are essential in this task. And since resistance to insecticides is a threat, preventative chemotherapy, long clothing, and vaccine usage can all be effective for vulnerable populations. However, it is important to understand that there is no funding to implement the vaccine, and it requires four doses in the first 22 months of life, which is not an easy feat, especially in developing countries. Right. Um, It's nice to know that there are several options individuals can implement for prevention. 
Do you know if there have been decreased mortality rates over time or are the numbers still multiplying? Yeah, that's a great question, Elena. So in 2019, there were 229 million cases of malaria. And in that same year, there were 409,000 malaria-related deaths. Sub-Saharan Africa is home to all of the perfect resources malaria needs to spread. Therefore, in terms of malaria's global level of prevalence, it is no surprise that in 2019, approximately 94% of the African region contributed to all reported malaria cases. That's really just astonishing. Um, Nigeria and the Democratic Republic of Congo are the two countries with the highest number of cases. And in addition to this data, most of these deaths occur in children under the age of five years old. What makes these statistics important is the topic of immunity. So for example, it is possible to get malaria more than once. However, people who grow up in the at-risk areas do develop some level of immunity and are less likely to contract malaria as they grow older. Um, but it's important to note that immunity can also wane when individuals end up moving to a region where they're not exposed regularly to, to these parasites. In this sense, it is essential for travelers to keep an eye on their health if they have removed themselves from malaria-ridden countries for an extended period of time. And clearly, the burden of malaria is striking in sub-Saharan Africa, especially with 229 million cases in 2019 compared to 228 million cases in 2018. So we are seeing like this little bit of an increase in malaria cases. Um, but yeah. Okay. Um, thank you so much for that information, Sydney. Clearly, malaria is still a prevalent issue due to the nature of the continent itself being a great breeding ground for these species. So let's move into the consumption piece now. So it is known that water mediates the relationship between deforestation and malaria. Therefore, the idea of deforestation in the United States is essential for understanding how agriculture and ranching negatively impacts our environment today. The presence of felling trees highly influences influences these aquatic environments that guide mosquito development. According to felling trees furthering malaria ran by Austin, microzams are created when these fallen trees obstruct rivers from normal water flow, producing prime mosquito habitats. According to Austin, most areas that are deforested are used for agriculture, agriculture and ranching, which tends to create prime mosquito habitats and introduce non-immune populations. That makes sense that agriculture is a major trigger for mosquito breeding populations. Do you have any evidence that can for further support this idea? Yeah, definitely. So many studies find that there are more malaria parasites or mosquito larvae in deforested, in deforested areas. For instance, according to Austin, um, they arrived at a similar conclusion in the research conducted in the Peruvian Amazon. They tested 56 sites with varying degrees of deforestation over several weeks and found that the influx Aflosophies darlingi was captured in the greatest quantities at sites with little remaining forest. Furthermore, deforested sites had biting rates that were more than 278 times greater than in areas that were predominantly forested. Not only are the dangers of malaria noticeably worse in deforested areas, forest loss can disrupt temperatures and lead to unfavorable conditions for migrant workers. Perfect. So now that we are aware of agriculture having a huge part in this problem, how might our trading networks also be perpetuating this issue? So as we might know, the United States feeds off the idea of power and money. So for instance, in chapter five, pharmacological failure written by Shaw, the who refused to believe 
refused to approve artemisinin unless production was moved to the United States. And essentially, the health of patients was not put first, rather being in control of selling yet another product in need. Moreover, according to Shaw, the Amer American drug company that started promoting chloroquine in 1947 claimed it was 8 to 32 times more effective than quanine. It is ironic and sad that America can commercialize these products, though there is still a theme of poor accessibility and availability of medications at government clinics. Therefore, the idea of money has and still is the main focus of the United States, even in the face of millions dying each year due to malaria. Even medications were protected by certain governments to gain profits. For instance, um, ACTs were developed in the 1970s, but only became available in Sub-Saharan Africa in 2004, which demonstrates these inequalities further. The persistent patterns in trade inequalities between nations can be seen in a number of global products today, like coffee. Wow, it is really sad how the U.S. is perpetuating these issues. Can you talk a little bit about how neoliberalism and structural adjustment policies are increasing malaria vulnerabilities in these countries? Yes, so neoliberalism and structural adjustment policies have negative impacts on malaria vulnerabilities since approaches to increasing economic prosperity in developing countries relies heavily on privatization, trade liberalization, currency devaluation, and reduced government spending. As a result of implementing structural adjustment policies and increased neoliberalism in Uganda, healthcare here has become privatized and the price of healthcare services has increased substantially. Consequently, Uganda has been burdened with a variety of factors that negatively impact healthcare, including suboptimal funding for healthcare infrastructure, poorly trained personnel, a lack of medications, high patient to pro provider ratios, decreased healthcare spending, and access to public healthcare, and restricted access to clean water and sanitation. Oh, I see now how these policies have had such an impact on healthcare in these regions. Can you tell me a little bit more about how it's impacted access to malaria drugs specifically? Yes, so neoliberal policies have encouraged the use of substandard anti-malarial therapies since they have caused more people to seek medical care from unregulated drug shops because organized health clinics are typically understaffed or lack necessary medications due to insufficient funding for healthcare infrastructure and public health programs. A study done in Nigeria found that almost half of the anti-malarial drugs on the market were substandard, and similar findings were found from a survey conducted across Asia, which concluded that over one-third of drugs had substandard quantities or no artemisinin in them at all. Consequently, the parasites were able to evade the substandard quantities of artemisinin and acquire resistance to the drug through subsequent genomic mutations. With all the discussion on antimalarial drugs on the market, are these medications something that is inaccessible or do residents have ample supplies of these? Yes, so unlike the other diseases we have talked about, drug shops and pharmacies are actually much more accessible to people living in Virata, Uganda, and these facilities are often better stocked with antimalarial medications than regulated health clinics. Health clinics are often short-staffed and lack medicines along with basic infrastructure, so many people often bypass this option and stop at drug shops to treat themselves from home. Drug shops do not have the ability to test or diagnose people to see if they're actually infected with malaria, and they allow people to buy the medications anyways, often at a lower dose if they cannot afford the full dose. This can lead to drug-resistant strains since people are saving the doses for later once they sense their symptoms improving. In Austin's work, one of her interviewees spoke on this issue saying, 
probably most of our community before if they come to the hospital or clinic, they first go to those roadside units and drug shops. Most of them mishandle the patients and the patients end up at the main facility. And somehow, as soon as the child starts improving, they discontinue the use. And that is why we are having problems with resistance and malaria. Wow, it is really interesting how these policies coming from developed nations are having an impact on health and access to health care in Sub-Saharan Africa. Given that malaria is ecologically driven, can you tell us a little bit more about how these policies impact that aspect of malaria as well? Definitely. So neoliberalism and structural adjustment policies also increase malaria vulnerabilities since they encourage deforestation and agricultural expansion as a means to keep up with the consumption demands from developed countries. The liberalization of trade has impelled unequal trade relationships between developing and developed countries, which has led to greater deforestation and environmental degradation in poorer countries, even though the majority of consumption occurs in developed rich countries. Can you explain what you mean by unequal trade relationships? Yes. So, for example, while coffee is heavily produced in places like Uganda, consumption occurs in North Africa, North America and Europe. And over time, neoliberalization has continued the cost to consume these products to drop, exploiting the farmers and forcing them to work at reduced wages. Oh, okay. I see. Thank you for that. And how have these demands from the U.S. increased malaria vulnerabilities exactly? Degradation of natural resources as a means to increase agricultural exports has led to greater deforestation and agricultural development, which increases malaria risk by increasing temperatures that promote larvae development, creating dams and other structures that increase mosquito breeding sites, and by exposing sunlight in once shaded areas that cultivate waters that can now harbor mosquito and malaria growth. Great points, Elena. Thank you so much for explaining how our actions and demands from the U.S. are propagating the spread of malaria in sub-Saharan Africa. Thank you all so much for watching, and as always, use what you learned today to educate others so that we can alleviate the harmful impact we are having on vulnerable populations across the globe. See you next time. Thank you.